Let me pray for us as we get into this. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. How, you know, what, what can we say? You are such a blessing. And we want to receive that blessing. We want to drink it in. We want to be filled, it up, filled up with it. We want it to overflow uh, out of us to, to the, all the people in the world around us, Father God. We want to return it back to you. We want every word spoken today to be glorious, you know, glorifying your name. We want every word and thought and uh, prayer uttered and song sang to give you joy. And so we, we pray for that this morning. Holy Spirit, come, take hold of this service. Take hold of our hearts, take hold of our minds, take hold of this sermon, take hold of every aspect of this, this time right now. We pray that you would stake out your claim on this property, Lord Jesus, that from corner to corner to corner to corner in this property, Father God, that every brick, every stone, every blade of grass, every tree, and every person would just be drenched with your Spirit this morning, that we would hear you speak beyond the words of this pastor standing up here or anybody else on this stage, Father God, beyond all that, that through those things that you would use them as an avenue for your spirit to really convict our hearts in great and joyous and powerful ways. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I was going to preach sermon prayer in my prayer there. Anyway. <laughs> um, so August 7th, you may, may or may not know, know this story, but August 7th, 1954, uh, the British Empire Games in Vancouver, right, there was uh, w- what was called the greatest mile-long race took place. They called it the Miracle Mile uh, between, the, between the Brit uh, by the name of Roger Bannister and then the Australian uh, named John Landy. And... Um, Roger Bannister strategized that in the third lap of this this race, uh, he would save everything for his final drive. But, you know, as they began to run the third lap, Landy poured it on and he was already in the lead. So he increased that lead. And Bannister decided to adjust his strategy and he increased his pace and he gained on Landy. And uh, the lead sort of diminished between the two of them. And... Uh, in the final lap, they were, they were neck and neck, so Landy pushed forward, and uh, they, you know, both of them ran faster. And when Landy couldn't hear the footfall of Bannister behind him, he made the mistake of looking backwards. And it was just in that little split, it was a fatal sort of lapse of concentration, enough for Bannister to lurch forward, and he won the race by like five, uh, five yards. And um, I would think that the Apostle Paul would by the way could i get a, a bottle of water from somebody i would think that the the apostle paul would have recognized that mistake uh you, you know knowing to be successful you know in this race of life you can't look back because even with the slightest glance backward that thank you um that is a great administrative assistant right there what a wonderful lady um she not only prays for me, she does the slides. She prays, you're awesome. I love you. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, even the slightest glance back, you know, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of there's this momentary loss of focus and rhythm and concentration, and it incurs this, you know, this loss of even a fraction of a second where somebody can overtake you. Um, 
You know, we ended last week with Paul saying at the end of, or in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he said, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's a, you know, just a really powerful uh, verse, two verses there. You know, Paul's talked a lot about how we train for and how we run this race of faith, right? And to understand Philippians three fifteen through 21, which is where we are today, and if you want to open your Bibles to that, somewhere around page 802, 803, um, uh, that's where we'll be today, Philippians three fifteen through 21. But to understand that passage, we have to understand, like, kind of all this stuff that Paul has said from chapter 1 onward, um, up until now. And you remember, we've said a number of things. We've said that at the very heart of Philippians is this call to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said that in chapter 1, verse 27. This, and, and this call to live this life worthy of the gospel demands unity in taking on the mind of Christ, Right? Working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as he said, since we live in a very dark world which seeks to upend or, or undo our spiritual formation or our walk with Jesus. We've said that Christ is the center of this letter, right? That in keeping focus on him, we put away fear, we, put, we grasp hold of faith, and we, we eradicate anxiety, right? And we find joy even in suffering. Paul reminds us that, you know, the scriptures, uh, scriptures are revealed to us and that Jesus is revealed in the scriptures and that, you know, they're not originating from within us. They are given to us. Right. And, and the Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to Christ. And he is the principle, the rule and the end of life. Right. So we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in in one spirit, striving together as one faith without being frightened by opposition. Since it's been granted to us not only to, you know, to, uh, uh, to believe on Jesus, but also to suffer for him. And Paul calls us to allow this biblical worldview... You know, in singular devotion to Christ, you know, and the scriptures which reveal him to filter out not only in our attitudes, but in a lifestyle that is worthy of his name. Therefore, we do what God dictates as good because it brings life. We don't do what he prohibits because it brings death to us and to others around us. While we are assured of our position in Christ, and we talked about this last week, I think, we work out our, 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 uh, our salvation with fear and trembling because we want to serve our king well. We want to do good at this. We, we, we want to we follow Jesus really, really well. So forgetting what is behind, we strain on towards what's ahead, pressing on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're not distracted by looking back, but we keep our focus on Christ as we run this race of faith. And so verse 15, today he writes to us, and I'll just begin with verse 15 and 16. He says, all of us then who are mature... Now listen to that word, mature, right? All of us then who are mature should take such view of things. So everything he said up until now, we should take view of that in that same way. And if at some point you think differently, 
that too God will make clear to you. Only let us uh, live up to what we have already attained. So remember last week, Paul gave us this list of his accomplishments, right? You know, but he's clear. He's clear that the mature person doesn't look back while running the, the, the race of faith. The past is the past, right? All the accomplishments, all the failures of the past, both lay on the trail as memories. They don't dictate the, the, the trail ahead, the race ahead, right? The race isn't over until it's over. And the mature Christian runs in such a way, understanding that the finish line is still ahead of them, and they may be tripped up. They may, they may fall in this race. They don't skate on accomplishment, nor do they grow despairing in their failure. They get up, they dust themselves off, and they keep going. Because both of those are worthless in, this, in light of what lies ahead for us. Right? With the wisdom of knowing that we can be distracted, that we can be manipulated off route, right? It's prideful to say otherwise. We can be distracted. We can be manipulated. We pour all of our energies as Christians into a full pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus and a life that is absolutely reflective of Him. And even as we run, we are transformed. I'll let you know, I was very convicted writing this sermon this week. These sermons have been speaking to me. The Spirit will challenge and change some of our thinking and our behavior, our lifestyle over time as we walk with Jesus. And as Paul states repetitively, we're to be about God's glory in pursuit of God's mission. Jesus' last command becomes our first concern, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So we do all that we do in order to see the kingdom of God expand out into the world, that more and more and more people will find true freedom in Christ through our witness and our words. As one pastor says, those who pursue Christ produce those who pursue Christ. And those who continue to run after Christ stand firm in Christ. That's worth a second read. Those who pursue Christ produce those who pursue Christ, and those who continue to run after Christ stand firm in Christ. I'm currently, oh, I have to think I have it here. Currently reading this book. Yeah, it's called Another Gospel. A lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. It's by a woman named Alyssa Childers, who was a musician in, in some band. I forget what the band's name is. It's a Christian band. But I, you know, I'm not that great in that stuff, so I don't really remember it. But um, you know, she, as she ran her race of faith, uh, she was distracted by this sort of new progressive, and I would say false gospel, that is being pursued and preached by many in the world today. Uh, which at its core really denies the authority of God's Word, the authority of the Scriptures, and therefore it calls into question all the basic doctrines of Christianity. It like injects doubt into everything, and you end up not feeling solid, like you can stand on solid ground anymore. And her faith was almost shipwrecked. She was led into this by this pastor that just kind of called himself like a hopeful agnostic if you're a pastor, you can't be an agnostic, I'm sorry, but, but her faith was almost shipwrecked as she got into all this stuff, stuff, but the Spirit spoke to her and brought her back, I would say, to life-giving orthodoxy, right thinking, and there is a right thinking. 
like many authors, you know, out there today, I, you know, uh, you know, the, she says some things that I would agree with, but I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say them in the same way. She suggests that if pastors and leaders in the church, you know, uh, could have spoken differently or shown more compassion to certain people uh, when they were going through d- difficult times and having doubts and all this kind of stuff, those, that those people would not have been drawn away by this false progressive gospel. You know, and if her argument was only about the psychology of communication, sure, that, that's logical. And we admit, I would be the first to admit that all leadership should be devoted to ministering to other people well, to listening well, to, to speaking, you know, with gentle words and things like that and, and leading in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, a deep spirit led way and all that kind of stuff with people. I would be the first to say that. You know, but where I disagree, this is where I disagree. And I'm not sure that she's really saying this, but when somebody reads it, they get it this way, right? That it, it suggests that leadership is responsible for people's response due to how well we minister to them, right? That, that we actually are in control of their response in some way. And that can't be true given the insidious nature of sin, the complexities of the human heart, and, and the influence of all the spiritual and, and physical realm out there, you know, on, on a purpose, person's life. People are responsible for their own walk. And we do inf- influence each other. And I hope we do. And I hope we influence each other towards Christ, towards Jesus, right? Remember, Christians are simply called to proclaim, to baptize, and to teach all that Christ commanded. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? That's what we're called to. And how that's taken by, uh, you know, by somebody is, is up to God and up to that person receiving the message. Admittedly, I, I would admit, there have been abuses in the church, and we should deal with those when they come up, but we can't judge a belief system by its abusers. Let me say that twice. We cannot judge a belief system by its abusers. You've got to understand that. Because that's what people want to do. They want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They want to say Christianity is not worth anything. Look what the church did to me. No, that's not true. Go back and read the words. Read the scriptures. Get close to Jesus. And you'll find something out, right? A person is responsible to ultimately go back to Jesus. A person is responsible to go back and, and, and get involved and find mature believers who would not do that to them and surround themselves with those people. See, as individuals, we need to know or we need to run knowing that the enemy is on our heels. We don't look back, right? We keep our focus on Christ and that that, that enemy will use things inside and outside of the church to take our gaze off of Jesus. But maturity stays at the table. Maturity stays at the table knowing that we're all growing in Christ together, right? We're imperfect beings doing our best to move forward. It's one of the greatest things that I love about the vineyard is that they're all just a bunch of old hippies that are not afraid at all to, to, to share their, their junk. They're, they're not perfect people. You never get this prideful sense when you go to a vineyard conference that, oh, the leadership's all, all perfect. We're not. We know that. And everybody in this room knows that about me, right? 
Many of the stories, what we find out, of people being hurt in the church have another side. And I'm not trying to be critical of them necessarily, but I do want to speak with maturity and clarity here that often when we dig deeper, that person was already being led astray and they were just looking for excuses to walk away. Let's look at it this way. Staying focused on Christ is like a, a rowboat moored to a dock, tied to a dock, right? And even if that lake that it's sitting, that rowboat's sitting on is placid, you can't see any movement on that water, right? There's always, we know that there's always an underlying current tugging at that boat, right? And if that mooring comes loose in the middle of the night when nobody's watching, you know, there's no immediate perceptible change. The, the, the rowboat just doesn't fly out in the middle of the lake, right? But over hours, that boat slowly drifts away inch by inch by inch. And most of the time, we only see these changes in a person when they're too far out, they're too far gone, and they don't want to come back at that point. They're imperceptibly changed over time. Inch by inch, they've floated away from the church. They've floated away from Jesus. They lose interest. They pull out of fellowship. They begin to listen to that cultural current, which is the antithesis to the gospel message. Paul's saying... You've come this far. Don't be distracted. Don't throw off all that you've gained. Stay moored to Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. Because there are influences out there that will take you away. In in another race, in 1923, the Scottish and French teams were running and they were neck to neck. You know this story, right? And, and the runners came around the turn at, at, in this 440 run, shoulder to shoulder, but one of them was pushed to the ground. Briefly, he was down, he got up, and he started running, you know, he just, but now he's 20 meters behind, he's way, way behind the pack, and he's straining forward and he's running hard, but as they went to the finish line, this guy emerged ahead of everybody else to win the most uh, amazing race I guess there ever was, and it was immortalized in that movie, Chariots of Fire. I saw that when I was a little kid. That's an old story, right? What would most runners have done? What would they have done? I think, you know, if it was me, I would have, you know, waved a fist at the guys and I would have dusted myself off and I would have watched the the race by the sidelines, right? We would have thought we can't win. It's no use anymore. But Eric Lydell, who was a Christian, that runner, was beyond ordinary. And I'm sure he had read this passage, right? Uh, He was forgetting what was behind. He was straining forward towards what lies ahead. He He was focusing all his energy on the race, seeing the goal, and he was flying to the finish. He didn't give up. And this is really the way that everyone in the grip of Christ's grace must live live life. Listen to Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 15.10 in reference to his work for the gospel as compared to the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was with me. We are called to relentlessly pursue or press toward the finish line for the full and complete gaining of Christ. God's not against effort, remember that. He's only against earning. Dallas Willard, right? You cannot earn your salvation. But man, I can make all the effort in the world to get closer and deeper in Jesus. And I want to do that. So do you feel old and tired? (laughs) 
Like Chuck Swarkowski over there probably feels old and tired. No, I'm just kidding, Chuck. Do you feel old and tired? Don't give up. Keep running. Right? Are you, go- are you young? Are you full of energy? With all the distractions in the world around you, be about that one thing. Be about following Jesus. Right? Eric's running was not, you know, the only manifestation of his devotion to Christ. In 1925, he completed two degrees, science and divinity, and then he went off to be a, a missionary in China. 1932, he gets married, has a, has a few kids. 1941, with the Japanese occupation coming, he sends his wife and his children back to Canada to live with uh, her family uh, while he stayed in China and he served the poor. Then in 1943, he was imprisoned and he still continued to serve those around him in prison. And in 1945, he died of a brain tumor. They say that it may have been caused by his malnourishment and overwork. Lydell's grave was marked by a simple wooden cross with his name written in boot polish. (laughs) In China someplace, right? He's now interred in the mausoleum of martyrs in china wherever that is but he certainly died running right he kept going a life given to one thing forgetting what lay behind straining towards what lay ahead he pressed on for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus great life story Alyssa was knocked down but she got back up again She got back into the race. And the Spirit made clear to her, as Paul states, that when she thought differently, God would make clear to her, and she is back into the race of faith. Amen to that. Has the world knocked you down? Man, we've been through a lot lately with the elections and everything else. As, As I talk to people, they are just fed up with all the vitriol, all the craziness. It's just been hard. Has the world knocked you down? Have, have you begun to drift away from Jesus slowly? Can you feel it? Can you sense it? Are you starting to have a different view of the people around you and the world around you? Have you been drifting away from the truth and the life of the true gospel? I would say allow God to woo you back in. Allow God to lead you back into the race. We need our models in life. We need Eric. We need Alyssa. We need other people around us who actually exemplify Jesus in our lives. And that's what Paul says next in verse 17. He says, join together in following my example. (laughs) That sounds arrogant, but it's not. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have used us as a model, he's referring to Epaphroditus and Timothy, who he's already commended in chapter 2. He says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We need those models, right? We, we learn watching others. We even learn from watching others' mistakes, right? Like, well, this childer made a mistake. Young uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a classical music guy, but I know the story that he made repeatedly long trips to, um, to this great composer's church. I, if I mispronounce his name, I, I apologize, but Dietrich Buxtehude, I think it was, right? And he went to his church over and over and over just to observe this guy, hear him play and all that kind of stuff. He even copied his scores by hand and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 
all which had an, a tremendous effect on Bach's playing and his musical abilities and stuff. And, and what's, what's really weird is that Bach's surpassing genius was developed on the lesser genius and example of his mentor. None of us are self-made. Not one of us. We are not self-made people. We are influenced by others and culture more than we'd like to admit. Really, We really are. And Paul is saying, get around mature Christian influence. Imitate them until that becomes muscle memory for you. Right? Pursue Christ in the context of Christian fellowship until you become the person who produces people who pursue Christ as well. Discipleship. Right? And then Paul makes very clear to us that this isn't just about some ethereal, philosophic, religious thought. Something that you can just say you believe but not really live. It filters down to how we live. It filters down to our behavior, our choices in life, right? And there, and let me remind you, and I know it's not popular to say these days, but there are moral absolutes in the Christian life. There are. Errant thought leads to errant behavior. Errant thought leads to errant behavior. And those errant behaviors and those errant thoughts, they don't produce the life of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but rather they bring us death. It might be inch by inch and slow slow in its you know, doing, but it does happen. He says this in verse 18. For as I have to- often told you before, and I now tell you again, even with tears. So this bothers him, right? Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Philippi was a small town, right? It wasn't Philadelphia. It wasn't New York City. It's a small town. And like any church, and by the way, all churches have this happen, it had people who had fallen down in the race and they had not gotten back up. They had not rejoined the, the pursuit of Christ together. The cultural current led them astray, Right And eventually leaving the church, they, they start living in ways that are reflective of their inner disconnection with Christ and the church. They were the antithesis to the lives of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And likely these people still had regular contact with most of the congregation there in Philippi. And they threatened threatened to poison sort of the unity of the church that Paul's been talking about throughout this whole letter. Paul's tearful grief, he's a good pastor, right? His tearful grief indicates that their apostasy had been a personal, deep loss to him. We pastors don't like to see this happen. We love you guys. We don't often like all of you, but we do love you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I like all of you. That was a lie. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Albert, you know, sometimes he's difficult, but he's, I love him. No, I'm just kidding. We, um, <laughs> but evidence, I, I, I'm glad I can joke like that. Evidence that these sort of former um, converts had become sort of enemies of the cross of Christ is indicated by the way they now walked, how they lived their lives. Their lifestyles repudiated all that the cross stands for. Specifically, that passionate pursuit of Christ and that cross-centered life of suffering in Jesus. Right? And he then explains 
what their lives look like in these four quick, intense statements. He says, their destiny is their destruction. In other words, they will not inherit eternal life. He's saying their God is their stomach. He's saying that their their glory is in their shame. This is verse 19. And then finally, their mind is set on earthly things. So their pursuit of comfort displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross in their lives. The professed professed Christian whose own physical and personal needs come before the the Lord, displacing the cross, should take note because their God has become their belly. That's just a sign of their desires, their pleasures. Those whose bodily comforts, right, uh, such as what they eat, where they're going to eat, you know, how, how and where they'll live, you know, what they spend their, to satisfy their own pleasures, you know, all this kind of stuff. They should, you know, if we let that stuff take priority, we should be aware that any pleasure can impede a passionate pursuit of Christ. Christians are not supposed to be people about that, Right? We have to realize in the Christian life, and if you want to learn more about this, go read Dallas Willard. Go read people like that who really speak about these things. Feelings and desire are subjugate. They come under the authority of and the control of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the mature Christian life. We don't just let our feelings go. One of the worst advice you can ever get is follow your heart. Oh, gosh, terrible, terrible advice because my heart will lead me places I should not go. Follow Jesus is a better advice, right? These people gloried in their shame, their sensual excesses, especially in the area of sexuality and the lure of immoral practices, you know, that of, of this former life that they used to live, right? And, you know, understand, and contrary to the popular teaching out there in some churches, you know, they also lived in a deeply sexually perverted society. They were no better than us. And we we're in a pretty bad place in this, this society. Ancient peoples did have open homosexual practice even with committed same-sex couples at that time. They did have pedophilia. They did have a myriad of sexual deviances going on, including temple prostitution at different times in their history. And you've got to understand that God has always, 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 from the very beginning, beginning, beginning of forming Israel, has always called Israel and likewise the church away from these thoughts and these actions to a sexual ethic of one man and one woman in committed matrimony with sex being the consummation of that commitment, not beforehand, but after you say yes before Jesus and the community that you want to marry this person reflective of God's relationship with the church. These things are important. Your, 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 your thoughts, your actions, your choices make a difference in your witness. They make a difference within you whether or not you're dying slowly or finding life in Christ. Now, I understand I understand, all of us understand, some people struggle very deeply with some of these things, and that is understandable. We're not, saying, we're not being jerks. Everybody's welcome to come into the church with any struggle that they, they have, even if it's you know, that or greed or whatever it is. But it must be marked by unity with the mind of Christ. 
It must be marked with unity by the mind of Christ. It must be with with this idea of running the race towards Jesus and and obeying what he says, leading to repentance and a lifestyle reflective of God. That's what it's got to be. Unity is when we come into agreement with God. Being obedient as to what is best for us as God, and others as God defines it. Not me and not anybody else. Alyssa Childers had a friend who called and confessed that she was coming out of the closet. And had, she had changed her views on what she thought the scriptures said about that issue. And Alyssa listened to her and she asked, have you, ever, have, have you really changed your view on scripture or are you just tired of fighting? And after a long pause, she goes, I'm just tired of fighting. She knew the right answer. I'm not saying these things are easy. Some of this stuff is very difficult for us. And we constantly fall, fall, fall. But we get back up and keep running. But some of us get tired of fighting. We get tired of fighting, you know, this fight of faith. And we give up. And then we expect the church to change all of its views just for us. But we can no less change the word of God than lasso the sun and bring it down to the earth. You can't do it. You can't do it. Like us, they had come out of a former life and a culture that was absolutely unreflective of God. But in coming to Christ, we repent of our sin. We turn away from it and turn towards Jesus. And we still do, day in and day out, as we slip back into whatever form it takes. No sin is any worse than other ones, right? Paul's talking about the person who has fallen down and then blamed others and then begins to live in an unrepentant way once more. And they don't want to have anything to do with all that other stuff. Their minds are set on earthly things. Earthly things. And now they are diametrically opposed to the true citizens of heaven. They repudiate the moral standards to which the gospel of Christ calls his people. Now, does this signify that the word of Christ hadn't originally fallen on fertile soil in their hearts? Maybe. Maybe they had only had an emotional response to Jesus at one point and not a heart-changing conviction of true, real true conviction. Therefore, when it comes to suffering for Christ, or when, when, when there is outward distraction, they easily cave, right? We're not perfect who pursue Christ. The difference is unity under Jesus. Unity under Jesus. Unity under His Word, right? And in a life of constant repentance in our moral failure. Because it is important. And there is room for failure. We know that. The unifying thing is taking on the mind of Christ, standing firmly in our conviction that God is right and God is good in His estimation of what sin and the gospel is, leading us into a lifestyle that is absolutely worthy of His name. Christians are called to be separate in the world. Called to be separate concerning these kinds of things. Not geographically separate from the, from the rest of culture, but to live a life that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. As we struggle under the grip of the world, we struggle with this stuff. None of us are hypocrites. 
That's the dumbest argument somebody can give against the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. No, we are actually people that admit we are screwed up. We know it. Deep down, we know it. We know we can't help ourselves. We know we can't get, get this right. Right? But we have grace to keep going. Right? And then Paul says next, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the, uh, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Amen to that, right? Paul's message to us is this, right? The way we live, our walk, our appetites, uh, the things in which we revel, um, our inner disposition, all reveal where we really are with Jesus. They really do. And we should note, Paul, who had much to say about the nature of authentic faith in other places, didn't say a word about faith right here. Here, lifestyle reveals the authenticity of the professed believer. I know that's not something we always say, but it is true. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, in the moment saying, well, he's doing that wrong, so then he must be all screwed up, you know, n- you know, not part of Jesus at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that are we people who are long-term pursuing Jesus? Are we actually trying to do this? And taking this warning to heart helps us. It makes us, you know, face life and faith with a little fear and trembling. It should. We should take this seriously. It is essential to, it, to if we're standing firm in Christ or not, if we're actually pursuing him. As Paul said in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And manner of life right there is better translated as manner of life as citizens of heaven. Right? So the Philippians were citizens of the commonwealth of heaven. This different place, this different city, right? Apart from Philippi, even though they were physically rooted right in Philippi, right? This was a particularly good illustration for them as this small little city, this little outpost of the Roman Empire, you know, not far from the Roman center, but still under its influence. So that likewise, they could see themselves easily as a Christian outpost in the world with Christ as their true allegiance, but as they live differently than everybody else. It's a great illustration for them and one for us. Ed, Ed Stetzer, a sort of pastor and church guy, recently wrote an article that I read this week uh, called What It Means to Preach Jesus as Lord. And he said this, To the first century Christians, Jesus is Lord, those three words, right, meant something far more. With Caesar as the obvious ruler of the entire known world, it wasn't only commonplace, but it was expected, that cotton mouth, uh, that when someone was greeted publicly, he was supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. And to say it like he really meant it. So it was like the Heil Hitler of the day, right? So when the early Christians chose to say, Jesus is Lord, in their greetings, and, you know, as their declaration, they were, they were literally choosing to align everything with Jesus, even their own lives. Their words weren't just statements. They weren't just Christianese, right? Uh, he continues... They were downright treasonous. 
They echoed a subversive rebellion against the establishment that clearly resonated their allegiances and alliances. These three words, Jesus is Lord, changed everything. Think about that. You know, I I spent nine years in Indonesia where some of my church planters got their heads hacked off for doing ministry, for saying Jesus is Lord. Where their houses and their churches got burnt down and their, their daughters got raped, excuse me. That's the reality in other parts of the world. What we face is nothing. Gonna lose your job? Big deal. Big deal. There's other jobs, right? Would we also identify so quickly with Jesus under threat? I hope we will. I hope we will. But in language and thought and lifestyle, these Philippian Christians were set apart for the glory of Jesus, for the sake of his mission, in profoundly dangerous ways. And the future hope, and it's something I truly believe in, this future hope and result of this radical transformation, not just for our physical bodies, but it's for our, our, our whole person as a totality, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Murray Harris writes this in his classic study uh, called Raised Immortal. He says, Paul's saying then that in place of an earthly body that's always characterized by physical decay and dignity and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that's incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and in appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that's invariably responsive to his transformed, transformed personality. That is our future hope. Jesus is coming back. His kingdom will be established in full. And I firmly believe that. So here's what we do right now. We run as if to win the prize for which we've been called heavenward in Christ. We run in a way as to be worthy of the calling that we have received. The race is not over until it's over. What's behind is behind. Don't look back. Stay focused on Jesus. If you've been drifting away due to these, the enemy's influence in your life or, you, or you've been feeling hurt by the church, deal with it. Grab hold, stay at the table, pray the Spirit leads you back in, get with a trusted believer, begin to soak up Christ through them and, you know, through his word and through a prayer life once again. Even if it feels dry, it's worth it. Something's happening. Make church, church fellowship, make a daily quiet time in the scriptures, make an open life of prayer and confession with others an absolute priority in your life. Live the life of discipleship with each other. Because unmoored you will drift. But Christ is solid ground which anchors you in, a pla- in, in placid and stormy waters. We cannot be moved if we keep our, if we keep our anchor on Christ. Now remember, I just want to just add at the end there, we do remember that We believe here, and our statement of faith says it, once saved, always saved. We're not talking about 
you know, losing your salvation or anything like that. What we're talking about is running, pursuing Jesus with all passionate heart. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are uh, able to make sense out of all of that. Come, Holy Spirit, settle on our hearts, convict our hearts. We want a passionate life devoted to you. We want to be a church, a a community of people, not only just as individuals, but a community of people that is fully and absolutely devoted to you. People that are willing to take the shots. People that are willing to put our neck on the line for others and for the sake of your name and your glory in this world. So come, Holy Spirit. Bless us with your presence. And challenge our hearts in ways that we can really grab hold of. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to say, really quickly, sorry. I just want to say that uh, in the newsletter that I sent out yesterday, one of those opportunities is there's a a young woman of, I think she's 25 years old. She's got a 10-month-old baby and she's pregnant and going to have that. I think she's set to induce her her baby in 10 days. She needs a place to live for four to eight weeks. And they're asking local churches, this one organization is asking local churches if anybody would open up their home to do that. That's one way you can, you can be the, the hands and feet of Christ in this, in this world. If you're interested, you've got a free bedroom, you'd love to have this lady live with you for a little while, I can give you the information and you can explore it. I'm not saying you could have to say yes right away. Then secondly, I just got a phone call this morning from another guy who's asking for uh, a Chinese student that has come over. Uh, I think he's a refugee. Uh, If there's a place to uh, open up your home to him as well, Kim and I would do it, but we already have one refugee. We have borders and we have uh, 